Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 495 for October 30th, 2019. On today's show, trumpeter Taylor Ho Bynum. This show is supported by its members, without whom the Jazz Session would quite literally not be possible. I'm trying very hard to make the Jazz Session and my other podcast, A Brief Chat, into my living. You can help me do that by joining today at thejazzsession.com slash join. There are now two membership levels, $5 and $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. For example, this month, $10 members get to hear Champion Fulton talk about one of her favorite classic recordings. Also, congratulations to Lance Harris, one of those members, who won an autographed copy of Champion's new duo CD with Corey Weeds. Visit thejazzsession.com slash join and do the thing yourself. I really do appreciate all the people who share this show. I appreciate all the people who like my social media posts and leave nice comments. All that stuff is awesome. But memberships are what I really need to keep this whole project going into the future. Thanks. A quick technical note about this interview with Taylor Hobynum. Our home router went out twice during this interview, so there are two places where it will be obvious that something happened and we had to reconnect. Taylor was a great sport during the whole fiasco, which took much longer than the interview should have, and I'm very, very grateful for that. He has a new album called The Ambiguity Manifesto, and it starts with one of my favorite tracks of 2019, Neither When Nor Where. Bonham, welcome back after almost a decade to the jazz session. Thank you, sir. Nice to be back. So the new album is called The Ambiguity Manifesto. And just to get this out of the way right now, I I adore this record. I just think it's so fabulous. And oh, well, uh, thank you, sir. Much yeah, appreciated. <laughs> I have listened to it a ton since uh, it came my way. And, you know, I, uh, given all the people that I interview, some records I listen to a few times for the interview and then you know, they don't really stick around in the rotation necessarily. Uh, this is one I know we'll just, I'll keep coming back to again and again because there's so much there. So uh, that's all the fanboying out of the way. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, man. <laughs> well, not necessarily <laughs> all of going. it. You, you have to stop <laughs> yeah. going. That's the introductory fanboying so out of the way. <laughs> this is not a real Mike Wallace style interview that we're doing right now. <laughs> Um, so I guess let me start off by, uh, because I think it will set the scene for talking about the music. Let's start off by talking about the people because they're just so crucial to what happens on this record. And this is a band that you're calling the nine tet and it features the members of your sextet, uh, plus some folks that, you know, people will know from your orbit, certainly that you've worked with in the past. So will you just, uh, run through who's on this record? Sure. So the core of the al- the core of the band is sort of my long running sextet, as you noticed, which is Jim Hobbs on alto saxophone, Bill Lowe on bass trombone and tuba, 
Ken Filiano on bass, Tomo Fujiwara on drums, and Mary Halverson on guitar. I've had a sextet really since 2004, and Mary and Toma have been a part of it from the very beginning. In about 2009, 2010, I changed up the personnel and added Bill and Jim and Ken. So that core group has been together for, you know, just about a decade now. And we did a record called Apparent Distance on Firehouse 12 and then did uh, Navigation, which was that group plus Chad Taylor on a couple things to give it a double drummer thing. And then that group was also the core of the big band record I did, Enter the Plus Tet, about three years ago. And then again, the core of this nine tet. So it's a nine tet. It also is very much just a continued <laughs> expansion and mutation of my sextet. And those are all musicians, you know, I mean, Bill and Toma, I've literally known since I was a teenager. And all the others, Jim, I've known since I was about 22. Mary, I've known since I was about 28. You know, and Ken, I've known since I was about 26 or 27, too. So this is decades. You know, these are all folks I've known for between 15 and almost 30 years, <laughs> which is actually kind of terrifying to think about. <laughs> yeah, I just love these musicians. And I, and I just feel the depth of those relationships, even if this group doesn't get to play together as much as I would like. There's so much history there, so many other ongoing collaborations with all of those artists that really always feels like just sort of a family reunion whenever we can get together. And then for this recording, I wanted to add, you know, expand the palette of the sound a little bit. So I added Ingrid Lauerbrach and Tamika Reed, who are two dear friends on tenor saxophone and cello, who were also members of the big band recording, the Plus Tet recording I did a few years ago. And we also all have other ongoing concerns together. And then sort of the wild card in this one was Stomu Takeshi, who hasn't necessarily been in this orbit before, but we've done several projects in the past, including this <laughs> thing I did of all of Prince's music a few years ago. Um, and I've always just been a big fan of his music and felt he would be just sort of the perfect sort of personality and character to add into this mix. So that's the band. A lot of it was personality. You know, a lot of it was, these are just people I love and love to make music with and love their improvisational, you know, risk-taking and brilliance and all of that. But it also ended me up with an instrumentation I quite enjoyed because you could think about it as there's four horns and four strings and percussion, or you can think of it as sort of high-low saxophones, high-low brass, high-low acoustic strings, high-low electric strings and percussion, you know, or like four treble clef instruments and four bass clef instruments and percussion. <laughs> you know, I always, I always ended up pivoting around Toma's role. He's very crucial in this. But it gave me all these sort of different voicings and pairings and different ways I could think about constructing, you know, really using the no net like a mini big band in a way. So it, it gave me a lot of possibility, both with the incredible musicianship and personalities of the specific individuals. And the instrumentation gave me sort of a fun, a fun place to play with.
didn't know what to expect from this record, but I definitely did not expect the, like, Quentin Tarantino soundtrack music that it began with. And I, <laughs> I have to tell you, the first time I listened to this record, I was taking... I. I, I take a morning walk each day and uh, I often listen to, to music on that walk. And that's the first time I listen to this record. And man, I was suddenly walking down the street in a whole different way when neither Got a little swagger where, in there, man. man. I definitely did. I like, I should have been like on a case in the seventies or something. I don't know. I don't know what the deal was, but this record just kicks off with a groove. And it's not that I've never heard you play groove music before, of course, but I don't know, just the the sound of this ensemble, and it's just got kind of this beautiful, dirty quality to it. I I just loved it, and I especially love it when it comes back around and gets deconstructed later in the album. Uh, just so, let's just start right off if we can, and just tell me something about neither when nor where. And whoop, are you gone? So I've definitely heard you play music with a groove before, but I guess I, I don't know. I just wasn't expecting this record to open this way. And I'm I'm curious where it came from. And from hearing you talk and write about this and see, seeing some things you've written about this record, it seems like things sometimes just happen really organically with this ensemble that maybe you don't even plan. So I wonder where on the spectrum this, you know, dirty little piece of groove falls. <laughs> Well, I'd say, I mean, it was partly it was kind of an intentional bait and switch, you know, I mean, everyone always thinks of what I, the very few times that anyone does think of me in my music, they tend to think of it as being very weird, which I appreciate and I want to cultivate and encourage, but I love a good groove. So it's kind of fun to start the record off that way, like really start it off in the pocket. And then the second track is maybe the most explicitly abstract track. And then the rest of the record is spent sort of reconciling the space in between. I've been really into Bill Withers recently, man. Just really obsessed with Bill Withers. Oh my and God, his, you are speaking and, my language. Right, right. And all those, and James Gadsden, his drummer, yeah. who's one of the great, like, pocket 70s funk yes. drummers. And all these amazing YouTube clips of James Gadsden just throwing down these absurdly funky grooves, like, just so relaxed and so chill and, and you know, with, with some amazing sunglasses on. So like, and the meter, I'm also a huge fan of the meters. Tamika and I actually freak out about the meters a lot. We, we share a real obsession with them. And so, you know, Zig Modalesti, the drummer for that band, and James Gadsden. So I was really thinking about those kind of pockets. And and I'd, you know, I'd sent Toma some emails being like, hey, man, here's like, I know you dig all this stuff anyways, but here's like a listening list I really want you to dig into for this tune, which I usually wouldn't do because I love just him coming up with what he he's so sensitive and musical and brilliant that like what he brings to it is almost always right. But in this particular instance, I really was particularly thinking about those drummers and and not trying to reproduce it or do a cover or do it, you know, too faithfully, but just making sure that sound was kind of in our ears and in our hearts when we made that 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 tune in particular. And then deconstruct the hell out of it over the next hour, of, you know, following the record, you know, following that track. I'm really glad you used the word relaxed and definitely, you know, James and, and Zigaboo, who you mentioned, uh, share that quality. And one of the things I really appreciate about this album is that there's a well, the word that I will say, the word that came to my mind when I was first thinking about this, when I first started listening to this record was was gentleness, that even when the album is at its funkiest or at its most abstract and, and noisy, you can still hear all of the parts that make up the whole 
And there's a feel of everyone kind of moving around one another in the space. Like I almost just think of it like a bunch of dancers or something kind of occupying a space not quite large enough for them. And so they all find a way to share what's available. And I really, I really love that about this record that at the same time as it can be, you know, let's bite the reed and see what happens. There's also just this allowance of, of space and feel and mutual appreciation. And I think, you know, the, the opening track is a great example of that. Cause yes, it's like a, you know, kind of classic dirty funk groove, but at the same time, you can just you can almost hear everybody listening <laughs> and to me that's really that's really effective and i think one of the things that stands out about this record for me oh thank you man to a dancer so i appreciate the dancing analogy <laughs> um i think part of that is a is a is, is i mean most of that all of that is a tribute to the musicians involved and sort of the maturity of each of their conceptions you know nobody needs to force anything nobody needs to prove anything i think we're just really enjoying each other's company enjoying each other's sounds and enjoying the chance to you know give each other the space to sort of come up with something. Nobody, it never feels like anyone's pushing an idea. It always feels like we're responding to each other. And I, and I really love that about this group of musicians. Part of it is I've been saying, I sort of see this as the conclusion of a trilogy, <laughs> you know, that started with navigation and that continued with enter the Plestet and then moved on with this one, which was dealing, you know, different sized ensembles, but always with the same core group of musicians. And really, for me, investigating a very similar, I mean, different materials, but a, a shared sort of compositional philosophy throughout these three albums. I feel the previous records I made for my sextet or for other groups, you know, I always am interested in long form and blending composition and improvisation and blah, 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 like that kind of stuff has been consistent. But I think earlier I would write long forms or suites with predetermined roadmaps in some ways, you know, like we're always going to go from A to B to C to D, how we get from letter to letter might be changing, but that's always, we're going to follow the same roadmap, sort of a traditional suite structure. Improvisation may or may not use the forms of the chord changes, but the overall itinerary is sort of fixed. With the last three albums, particularly with this group of musicians, we've been really exploring the idea of saying, okay, let me compose a book of materials. Let me compose a set of materials that we can explore. But once we get to know the materials we're working with, we it's not a fixed itinerary. Anyone, you know, anyone in the band can cue activity to move into a different space. And so it offers that possibility to sort of relax and explore these materials together. And and all of us giving each other the sense of surprise because it's not, there's not this sense, oh, we have to get to this end point. That's where this piece ends. There's this, okay, this is where, you know, 
it could end anywhere. It could end in another composition. It could not end. It could end in an improvisation. It could end with a duo or a quartet or an octet or everybody playing. And I think that openness in the construction is nice. And it gives, for me, I really enjoy it because it gives musicians of this caliber the chance to fully exercise their instincts and brilliance using composed materials and improvised materials, you know, really improvising with the form itself as opposed to improvising within a given form. And that I find really exciting. And I think these these artists do extraordinarily well, you know, make my music sound way better than it has any right to because they make such good choices and good decisions in how they're dealing with the material. Let's take a break from the music to talk about happiness. What is happiness? For me, it means the freedom to be creative and the ability to live my life on my own terms. For me, the jazz session is not only an expression of happiness, but a means of creating it. And what I mean by that is that every new member on the jazz session puts me one step closer to a life in which I don't have a boss, in which I work for myself and the people who enjoy my work take part in the process by helping to fund it. If you add to that the enormous archive of very nearly 500 interviews and the continued work of documenting modern improvised music, this whole package just makes me happy. Please join the movement today by becoming a member for $5 or $10 at thejazzsession.com join. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and even more. Do it right now, thejazzsession.com slash join. And now, back to the episode. In an interview you did for the video trailer for this album, at one point you used the word easy in talking about this music, which I think that word can be deceptive, but I kind of took it to mean uh, something akin to what you're saying now, which is there's a lot going on, but the underlying structural materials are simple enough to allow for anything to happen once they're kind of internalized. Exactly. I mean, there's certainly some stuff in this album that is challenging to play that took some rehearsal time and took some sort of time for us to digest and figure out how to get through it comfortably. But my particular interest, and you know, I really love and respect some music that deals with linear complexity, you know, like whether like changing time signatures every meter or really complex harmony or, you know, that's fascinating and can be done really well. I'm kind of a Charles Ives guy at heart, and I like kind of creating complexity by just like layering three folk songs in different keys on top of each other at the same time. <laughs> you know, and like for me, that often ends up being just as sad, just as weird, <laughs> and and just as satisfying, and and sometimes more surprising. Honestly, I think sometimes the technical rigor that it takes to deal with you know exceptionally complex written material sometimes 
doesn't allow one to have as much freedom as an improviser or as an interpreter of that material. And I really wanted to give my musicians enough of a challenge to inspire them and engage them, but not so much of a challenge that the challenge becomes the end point and instead gives, I, I love, you know, they all come up with such interesting ways to deal with this stuff. And so sometimes it's easier to keep, yeah, it's not all easy, but it is relatively simple, all things considered, compared to some of the other music that's used in, you know, contemporary music at this time. So for me, it's more about the engagement with the materials and sort of the performance practice of how we want to deal with this stuff than, you know, trying to write stuff that's just going to kick everybody's ass, you know, which is fun. And like, I love playing that kind of music sometimes. But for this band and this body of music, I'm really interested in more of the journey, you know. Well, one thing I've learned so far from this interview, uh, given the name checking of Bill Withers, the meters and Charles Ives, is that at some point our two couples should co-host a dinner party because uh, <laughs> we, we have pretty much exactly the same musical taste so far. And uh, it would be really fun to just make a mix of all that stuff for the people who come over and sample whatever we cook. One thing I wanted to ask you about is the the uh, just to get away from the music for one second is the actual technical recording of this album, because it's really stunning and i say that because there are moments for example when your particular playing like fades away to nothing slowly and you could hear every sound like every physical sound of you against the, the mouthpiece and the way your breath changes and your lips change in movement and you know like the the kind of liquidy sounds you hear when people play wind instruments and it's just it's recorded so amazingly so i just wanted to give a second for uh, i guess some praise for the actual recording process of the album because so much is captured that if it weren't there i think you know you'd really notice the absence oh well, thank you man. yeah and that's that's a tribute to nick lloyd and firehouse 12 and the incredible studio he runs and his extraordinary skills as an engineer i mean I've been incredibly lucky to have him as a partner and that place is sort of my home away from home because it's just, they're so good. <laughs> you know, he's so, and I've recorded there so much and played so many gigs there. It's also feels completely relaxed. It's my, you know, it really feels like I'm playing in my basement and with all of the wonderful sound that they capture it, we never feel like we're setting up and having to think about it. It just feels like we can just get to the music right away. And that's such a gift to have in the studio, you know? It's interesting. I also feel the whole vibe of it's lovely because it's one of those times when we recorded the when we recorded, we did two sessions over Friday and Saturday, recorded a bunch of material. It's funny, the last small group record I did with Fire, Firehouse 12 was Navigation, where we basically did four complete takes of a really long modular composition and released all four takes, <laughs> you know, and so <laughs> as sort of a four album set, I loved that. I didn't want to do that again. And so with this recording, we actually did just a little bit more editing and post-production than I usually would do. You know, often I'm I'm of the, you know, keep it raw and real in the studio attitude but for this recording, I wanted to play with it a little bit more. I was really thinking a lot, particularly with the double album format and the way I was thinking of it. I was really thinking a lot of like Electric Ladyland or uh, Bitches Brew or like Sign of the Times or like some of my favorite double albums that really kind of tell a story across four album sides. In live concert, we'll just take the materials and basically play for a continuous 60, 70 minute set. But what we did with this recording is we actually recorded sort of like the single versions of all of, of much of the material, <laughs> you know, 
And then we also recorded some extended explorations and deconstructions and takes of the full of, you know, where we could pull from the materials at will and then sort structured the album. So basically the first half of the album more or less presents the material in its, you know, origin state to steal a Braxton term. And then the second half of the material reimagines that those same materials in a more deconstructed way. We pulled out materials from across the two days of recording and sort of did a few very small edits within the pieces, not many, but a few, and did a little bit of post-production, particularly because I think Stomu and Mary and Ken were just doing amazing things with electronics and really sort of fattened up and, and sort of spaced out the sound in very cool ways. So there's a couple little moments where we wanted to add just a little extra to some of the horns to have them balance out with what the you know strings were doing with the electronics. So it was a little more of an involved editing and mixing process than usual. But I, I, again, I just can't speak highly enough of Nick and you know Firehouse 12 Records and, and the quality with which they capture the sound is, is really extraordinary. take this next comment in the spirit with which in which is intended which is that i when i was listening to this the most recent time which i guess was this morning uh again taking a walk i thought you know this is like taylor's pop record and i know you did an album <laughs> totally. of music of prince or whatever but i was thinking in a in a world where music that that was like this made its way into onto the radio at a wattage that more than seven people could hear this music. I think you could play a lot of this music for, for many kinds of people who think they don't like music like this. And you could say, <laughs> just check this out. Don't tell them anything about it. And they'd be totally fine. I mean, more than fine. They'd be completely down with what's happening. Well, thanks man. <laughs> Which is cool. Ahead, given man. that, you know, you not like a lot of it is, I know we just talked about easiness or whatever, but I mean, a lot of it is not easy, <laughs> you know, just, I don't, yeah. I don't want to give that impression to anyone. There is some real challenging stuff on here, but it's just, I mean, it just like welcomes you in with open arms. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And the funny, I mean, again, it goes all to that thing. I think we're in such a weird state where, you know, where we're music being turned into a commodity and being sold forces it to be so simply defined. And I don't think the best music is that way. You know, I'm like, I learned about using noise and feedback as an improviser from Jimi Hendrix, you know, not from listening. You know, I listened to Albert Eiler way later. I listened to Don Cherry way later. Like when I was a teenager, I was listening to Jimi Hendrix use feedback as an improviser and fell in love with that, you know? Same thing, you know, like Prince is weird. <laughs> you know, you listen to like Prince's like records in the early and mid eighties and that's, that's weirder than any avant-garde jazz record coming out these days, you know? So I think the line between 
genre and the sort of idea of what's popular and what's avant-garde should be blurry. For me, it, it really is a very real manifestation of the sounds that I love, you know, and I love noise and energy and crunchy sounds. And I love like big power ballads emerging out of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is where my own struggles as a, as, as dealing with sort of the jazz label sometimes are tricky. Cause I think so much of standard jazz has prioritized harmonic invention, which I hugely respect and I'm bloody terrible at, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, like, like where it's like, how hip a voicing can you get and how hip a chord substitution can you do and like extensions of heart, you know, that's great. And I respect that. I'm, but like, I'm really, for me, I've really just come to recognize, like, I love improvisation and I love noise and I love big melodies and they don't necessarily have to be complex harmony is honestly, for me, one of the last things I get attached to. And I think many people, and I feel that's sometimes what scares people off from jazz because it seems so complexly mathematical in that way. And so I hope with this record, there is a sort of just primal enjoyment to is, is definitely something I'm interested in. The third track on this record is called Real Unreal, and it's dedicated to Ursula K. Le Guin. Will you tell me why it's dedicated to her? I just really love her writing. <laughs> I mean, I feel particularly perhaps in the recent, you know, era that we are currently in over the last, you know, two, three years. The hellscape. It's really good to read stories about other worlds. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so much. Um, but I also feel she deals with it. She's, I mean, I think she's someone that deals with ambiguity so well. I think, you know, so much fantasy and sci-fi often has very simplistic, like good versus evil dichotomies. And she always avoids that. She always points out the complexity and ambiguity of every situation. You know, there's a, and it's interesting, there's a, a trilogy of novellas she, I, I read of hers. I can't remember. It's one of the ones about the, about a planet, you know, finally ending economy of enslaved peoples and sort of finding freedoms and moving forwards. So a revolution that had to happen. And yet all of the complexity and individual pain caused by any revolution, caused by any major change. Um, and that it was just, for me, that was a very thoughtful way to look at when a culture has to evolve for the survival of that culture and the inevitable pains that are going to happen with that evolution. I think that's very much, just felt very, very relevant to what we're dealing with right now. I came to her work relatively late. You would have thought she was someone I've been reading since I was a teenager because she's so much in my wheelhouse once I discovered her. But I came to her relatively late and then I started writing this tune for her and then she actually passed away while I was writing the tune. Like I'd actually already decided I was going to write this tune dedicated to Ursula Le Guin and then like 
you know, a week into composing it, I woke up and found out that she passed away. So that felt either that I should never dedicate tunes to anyone because I'm the harbinger of death, or it felt like a nice, you know, spiritual moment that, okay, I should reckon, you know, this, this energy was in the air and I want to pay tribute. So that was, yeah, that was the idea. I'd like to put my request in now to not have a tune. <laughs> I know, totally. Well, it's funny because, okay. you know, and I used to, and I, and I had this gig for a while writing obituaries for the New Yorker of jazz musicians. So I really, I really feel like people should just avoid me, <laughs> you know, and avoid <laughs> me writing about them. And yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Now, however, I will, uh, I will note that uh, the last track is dedicated to old music. And as recently as before we started this interview, I was listening to a record recorded you know, in the past. So that hasn't all been wiped out. (laughs) So maybe it's just a personal curse that, you know, and that's, and that's, and that's actually a double meaning. There's a character in this trilogy of novellas I was telling about a verse of Le Guin's called old music. So in some ways I wanted to dedicate it to one of her characters in addition to dedicating it to her herself. And also of course it's just dedicated to old music because we all love old, you know, the music that came before us is very important. So for me, there's a lot of little hidden hidden puzzles and jokes. I love having little puzzles inside my titles, which some of my friends find unbearably pretentious, but I still I still enjoy doing it. <laughs> uh, toward the beginning of this interview, when you were talking about the band, you talked about Stomutakeshi as being a, a wild card in this ensemble. Will you say some more about that, about w- what his addition brought to the mix? Yeah, well, he was, I mean, he was the one musician that hadn't worked with the whole body of other musicians before, you know? So I think... I had done a couple of gigs with him. I've always loved his music. Like his stuff with Threadgill and his stuff with Kung Vu was just very always, you know, some some of my favorite electric bass playing. And I think Jim was also on the Prince project we did. So I think Jim and he had worked together in that one band, but we only did like three gigs on that, you know. So it, it, he wasn't, everyone else had sort of worked with each other in multiple other contexts before. So here I, I sort of want, you know, it's always good to bring in a different approach and a fresh energy to the work. I mean, again, with his work with Kung and his work with Threadgill and his work with Myra and so many others, like obviously he was a very natural fit in terms of aesthetics and understanding how to deal with the materials. And I also really liked the idea of having Ken Filiano, such an amazing bass player, but also such an amazing arco player. I mean, Ken's got sort of unbelievable arco chops. So having another bass player in the group allowed Ken to really have a lot of space with Tamika, where they're dealing as bowed string instruments. And then that Stowe and Mary share, you know, so such a deep use of electronics, such a deep, you know, such good time and rhythm that that also freed them up to sort of explore some things. So... For me, it just allowed, it was it was just the right, it's one of those things where I'm, when you're sort of conceptualizing a project and, you know, I knew six of the pieces right away and I, and both Tamika and Ingrid had done guest gigs with the sextet before and so they were very natural fits, so that seemed so natural. And then I was trying to figure out that one slot. It was one of those things where I was, I also do much of my thinking while on hikes and walking. I remember I was on a hike and like Stomu came to mind. I was like, that's it. That's the last ingredient. And it was very satisfying to find that. Thank you. 
there's some uh, some great video of some of these songs being recorded, and it's slightly obscured by something in, in front of him. But I'm pretty sure at some point maybe he's playing his bass with like a soda can. Like yeah, he does, soda can. He, does, he does that sometimes. Because yeah. <laughs> then like it pans down to his bare feet and there's a crunched up soda can down there. And it's like, oh, maybe that's what he was just using. And this, yeah. I, I, I love going to see him play because he's like so much of what he does is embodied in the way he moves too, which I really, I yeah. really just love. I think he's a, he's kind of the whole package for me. He's great to listen to and he's great as a visual <laughs> representation of what you're hearing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually he's a, one of the real pleasures of this recording session you know, as I said, we recorded over Friday and Saturday, and we uh, Firehouse Twelve, the studios has an apartment, so the you know the whole band was staying at this apartment, and I was gonna take the whole band out for dinner, and then Ken and Stowe got wind of that, and like, no, 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 we're cooking, like we're we're having we're so one of the beautiful things about this recording is in the middle of it, I cooked a lamb tagine and a roast chicken, Stowe made a ceviche with like hake that was unbelievable, Ken did this like caramelized onion dish with the pasta. You know, it was just an amazing meal, and it felt very right for us to sort of like potluck and combine for this great meal. And that, for me, that's part of the recording. <laughs> you know what I mean? And also, once Ken and Stowe cooked together, you had no doubt that they were going to be able to play together. You know, because bringing in two bases, two, you know, whenever you're doubling any instrument, even if it's acoustic and electric, there's always questions of fit and balance and personality. As soon as we all cooked together, we knew it was going to be cool. You know what I mean? And Ken is the real deal as a cook. I've never eaten your food or Stomu's, but I often stay with Ken and Andrea when I go to New York, and he's cooked for me many times. Yeah, and Ken yeah, can throw down. He yeah. can, man. He's pretty serious <laughs> no. in the kitchen. It ain't just the base. We just had a running joke that someone was going to open the pot while the onions were caramelizing and that he might kill them if that happened. <laughs> you know, because you cannot touch right. the pot where the onions are caramelizing. You know, it's that that is that is a danger to life and limb. <laughs> so so true. If folks are listening to this interview around the time that it comes out, this is on or about October 30th of 2019, and that means that coming up just about a week from now, there's a, a sextet show in New Haven. Will you tell people about that? Yeah, so we'll be playing at Firehouse 12, as I just said, are very much home away from home. And it's actually the last, to my great sadness, it's the last gig on the books for a bit for this ensemble. So we'll be doing, we're doing it as a CD release concert celebrating the new album. But as of right now, I mean, I would take a gig in a second if it gets offered. But as a band leader, I'm sort of not keeping my foot on the pedal so much because I'm doing a big, uh, large orchestra piece that's coming up the following year. So that's taking up a lot of my energy. So I don't have the, I mean, again, as I said, if anyone's out there listening would love the gig if you offer. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have anything else on the books right for in the immediate future. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that will change, but this will also be a nice chance for us to sort of come together and, you know, play it out one more time. Yeah, so I encourage folks if you're uh, if you are in or can get to New Haven, uh, definitely check that out on the eighth of November. Then, uh, and if you haven't been to Firehouse Twelve before, I would stress Firehouse Twelve is an extraordinary place to go hear music because you're actually listening. The concert room is the recording studio. You're inside the studio, and the the sound is just immaculate. It's a really beautiful place to hear and experience live music. Oh, that's awesome. And then exactly one month later, on December 8th, uh, you're playing uh, with a, a completely different grouping of musicians, Kyoko Kitamura and Joe Morris, uh, in the Geometry Trio. Where is that taking place? 
Yeah, that's at the State House, which is a great space uh, in New Haven, part of a series that Joe Morris has been putting together in New Haven. And that's a, that's a great group. They actually have a new record coming out as well. I uh, should make sure you get a copy of that. It's a quartet, usually with Joe and Kyoko and Tamika Reed. Um, Tamika couldn't make this gig because she's on the West Coast. So it's, we're doing this particular concert as a trio. But we're just releasing our second album. And uh, that's just a love. It's a, it, that group, unlike this other group that's, you know has a lot of compositions and conceptual engagement and so forth, that's just a pure improvisation group. But one with such wonderful improvisers, it really becomes a pretty unique musical space. I think the first record was really wonderful, but this new record is just awesomely weird. <laughs> um, so uh, the first one was Geometry of Caves. I think the new record coming out is Geometry of Distance, uh, both on relative pitch records. But uh, yeah, it's just it's it's a really fun group, such a weird instrumentation. And I think we all dig into it and create this like we can't necessarily tell who's making what sound much of the time. And it's it's really interesting, you know, with voice and bass and guitar and cello, we, we can get into some stuff. So yeah, that's a group of improvisers I love working with. And it's a nice balance, you know, when one is doing a lot of composing and band leading, there's something so necessary about being able to have a space that's really just dealing with improvisation on the plane of improvisation. And then coming up in February of 2020, you just alluded to it, the Temp and Mr. Prosper. Will you tell me about that? Yeah, so this is this crazy project that I'm doing. I just started a couple of years ago teaching at Dartmouth College, which has been very enjoyable. I have a great group of students up there. The conductor of the orchestra has become a good friend of mine. And we realized in that school's history, the big band and the orchestra had never collaborated on anything. So we decided to change that. And then my friend, the conductor, Filippo Chiabatti, made the suggestion. He's like, well, why don't you write something? He's like, I like, you. I like your composing. <laughs> and I was like, sure, why not? I'd love to spend 12 months of my life on a huge, <laughs> giant project that will kill me. I love that idea. Um, but I am, I'm very, you know, I've done a couple pieces for orchestra. This will be the largest because it also includes a jazz big band and a choir and a couple vocal soloists. So it, it was it was kind of perfect timing to develop. I, I felt especially with Ambiguity Manifesto coming out, I felt that, as I said, that sort of concluded a trilogy of work and a body of compositions I've been working on for the past five or six years, or really maybe longer. Um, oh, are you there? I think... With the Ambiguity Manifesto, it sort of completed a body of compositions I've been working on for like small to mid to, you know, 15 musicians. And so I was sort of ready to take on a really large scale compositional project. I am collaborating with a wonderful poet, a poet that uh, I've been waiting years to work with, uh, Mattia Harvey. Um, and Mattia uses a lot of erasure processes where she'll take a found text and pull out words and create a new narrative. And so she did that with The Tempest and sort of turned The Tempest into this uh, modern story of of corporate hierarchy and a a, a cruel boss and a and a put upon temp worker who eventually finds their freedom <laughs> to escape the this this capitalist system. Um, well, holy God, I already love it. Oh my yeah, God. it should be and it should be a lot of fun. And so we're going to be workshopping it with the student ensembles this year or in February and playing it, but bringing up Kyoko Kitamura and Michael Mayo as vocal soloists and Jim Hobbs and Bill Lowe and Toma Fujiwara as instrumental soloists. I'm definitely, even something this big, I'm still pulling from my usual cast of characters. And then with the hope of after workshopping it with the students is developing it with professional performers and recording it and, and performing it in the following year. So going for something biggie, 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 which uh, 
should be interesting. And I'm quite curious, one of my real interests with this is I feel often jazz classical hybrids, you know, use jazz as a flavoring, you know, kind of a nice harmony or a couple melodies or something, but shy away from really using improvisational practice within a large orchestral context. So one of my real priorities with this is to make sure, you know, true deep improvisation is embedded within the work, that it's not just little moments here and there or a soloist on top of something through compose, but opening it up so, you know, it really is a creative music process for all of the, all of the performers involved, that we don't know what everything's going to sound like, you know, and, and trying to keep as much, you know, obviously you can't have as much freedom and flexibility as one does with a small ensemble. I couldn't do with an orchestra what I do with my sextet or the nine-tet. But as much of that philosophy and aesthetic that I can get in there, I want to get in there. That's sort of my interest. My guest for this episode, despite the best efforts of the Philistines at Comcast, has been <laughs> Taylor Hobinum. Taylor, it's uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again. I hope you'll come back in fewer than uh, nine years, which is how long it's been since the last time you were on. And I guess that's my fault. So uh, I, <laughs> I know I was going to say, man. That's <laughs> yeah, I'll invite you back much much more quickly than that. Uh, the new record is called the Ambiguity Manifesto. It's uh, out right now, and it is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I I can't recommend it highly enough. Thanks so much, Taylor, for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Thanks and thanks for doing the show, man. Keep on keeping on. Appreciate. If you like what you just heard, please become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Also, I finally have, like I literally physically have on the desk next to me, the first set of Jazz Session tchotchkes ever created, and they are going to 50 members. That's how many I have. So if I think we're at 42 or 3 or something now, so there's still seven slots of membership left who will get a tchotchke, the very first one ever. You can say I was there when. Please join today at thejazzsession.com slash join and get your tchotchke. Because who doesn't want a tchotchke? Thanks to this week's guest, Taylor Hobinum. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. You'll find them at respectsextet.com and to Dave Rabel for the logo. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at JazzSesh and on Instagram at the Jazz Session. Why? One cool reason to follow is that I post a clip from the archives on both those accounts each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Also, and somewhat disappointingly, the most popular thing I've ever posted on Instagram I just posted last week, and it was a meme about trombones. So, you know, follow. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. You can go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Next week, my guest will be Montreal-based pianist Andres Vial. Until then, support live music whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.